there's only one reason really to worship and say hallelujah. This morning when we were doing our, our preparation devotion, we quoted from Psalm 99, and on verse 5 of Psalm 99, there's this portion that says, Yahweh, our God, is holy, and therefore He's worthy of worship. A lot of people worship God because of the benefits. A lot of people worship God in all spectrum of religion. People worship God because of the things they get from God, because of the benefits. But really, if you think about it, if you take away the benefits, will you still worship God? See, worshiping God is because of who He is. He is worthy because He is holy. That's why we sing, Hallelujah, praise our King. Now, I know it's spring break, and I see a lot of greens. <laughs> but March 15th is also called as the Ides of March. I know if you're a history buff, you would know this. The Ides of March pertains to the commemoration of the assassination of Julius Caesar. Who is Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar was the first dictator in the Roman history. Now, in 44 BC, he went straight to the Senate because he was a member of the Senate, and he was stabbed more than 23 times by enemies, by allies, and friends. When he died, his son Octavian succeeded him on the throne. He was the first Roman emperor to be crowned as Augustus Caesar. So when you read the Bible and you read the, the Gospels and you read this name, Augustus Caesar, this is Octavian, the son of Julius Caesar. He was the first to be called Augustus Caesar, the son of divine. But you see, the Jewish nation was founded on the premise that Yahweh is king. Now, if Yahweh is king, and in the first century, Israel was under the Roman king, then what happened to Yahweh? What happened between Yahweh's king in Samuel to the first century, the Roman emperor Augustus Caesar is king? Did Yahweh resign from the job? Was he evicted from the job? What happened to Yahweh as king of Israel? Last week, we talked about 1 Samuel chapter 8, chapter 9, and now we're going to do chapter 10. Chapters 8 and 9, Israel asked Yahweh for a king. They don't want Yahweh anymore, so they want a human king. And by doing that, it implies that they are rejecting God as their own king. Let me read to you 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. If you have your Bibles, you can open it with me. Or your cell phones, iPads, whatever you have. Verse 17, it says, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Now, look very closely to the verbiage of Yahweh to the people in verse 18. This is the same exact statement in the opening of the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20. It says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. When you read the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, this is the opening line of God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. This is exactly the same thing that God opened in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 18. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. It's like, it's like God is telling the people of Israel here in 1 Samuel chapter 10, this is about the Ten Commandments. This is about your covenant with me. Remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, you are about to make a very big decision in life. 
God is trying to remind the people of who He is and what He did for the people of Israel. In fact, this is a sort of an indictment. This, is, this sounds like an indictment. The Mizpah was like a courtroom of God. It's like God telling the people of Israel, you're about to make a big decision. You are about to ask me for a king. I'm about to give you for a king, but I want you to, to pay attention and take this very seriously. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Now you are rejecting me as king. Now, Mizpah was not the first, uh, was mentioned not, uh, first mentioned not in 1 Samuel, but it was first mentioned in the book of Genesis. Uh, if you remember Laban and Jacob, it was the first time it was mentioned, Mizpah. So Laban had a quarrel with his, with his son-in-law, Jacob. Jacob went away from Laban, took away all his possessions, and then Laban uh, had a chance to catch up with him. He almost killed the entire family of Jacob. And so they met together, and Laban recognized that God has blessed Jacob. So he said, I want to make a covenant with you. And they called the place Mizpah, which means God is witness. So Laban and Jacob have a covenant with each other that they will not hurt each other, that they will protect each other. But they named the place Mizpah, which means God is witness. Whatever we do here, whatever we agree, God is witness. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Samuel brought the people again in the same place called Mizpah. It's like saying God is witness. We are about to make a decision that is holy to God. It's like Samuel saying to the people, good people of Israel, whatever you decide today, make sure, remember, God is witness. What are they going to make decision for? What's the decision? Verse 19, it says, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by a lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the Metrites was taken by lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by lot. Now, what's happening here? Watch closely how Samuel presents Saul. Now, before chapter 10, chapter 9... Saul and Samuel already met. Remember, Saul went looking for the missing donkeys. But then he did not find the donkeys. He met Samuel. And Samuel told Saul that he will become king. In fact, in chapter 9, he was already anointed with oil. So they had an understanding. Saul, in fact, was given the Holy Spirit in chapter 9. But then the people doesn't know that. The people is at a loss. Who is king? So Samuel gathered in chapter 10 all the people, and the Lord wanted them to have a lot. They, they want to witness how God will choose a king. So first, by tribes, and then by clans, and then by household, and down to, down to the individual, Saul, taking lots. Now, this is sound familiar to you. Casting of lots. Have you heard this before? Now, the last time Israel used this method, casting of lots, was when they were looking for a criminal. They were looking for someone who was the reason why they were defeated when they attacked the city of Ai. Do you remember that? 
See, before they attacked the city of Jericho in the time of Joshua, God said, do not take away anything. If you go to Jericho, do not take anything. Everything must be devoted to destruction. You cannot take away anything. But there's this one guy by the nickname Dennis the Menace who thought, maybe God won't mind if I take some silver and some gold and a Versace scarf and some Rolex. And so they attacked Jericho, and this guy took something which belongs to God. And so the next time they entered a city called Ai and attacked, they were defeated. Why? Because someone committed a mistake. But nobody knows who this guy is. So Joshua consulted God. Who is this guy? And God told Joshua, cast lots by tribes, by clans, by households. And then they found this guy. His name was Achan. Achan means trouble. And when he found Achan, when they all found Achan by casting of lots, he was stoned to death together with his own family. They're doing the same method right now. As if God is saying, you are trying to find trouble, just like Achan. By casting of lots, God is reminding them that this is not going any better. This is all about trouble. In order to find this guy, the king, the king means trouble. You see, there are certain lessons that we can learn from asking God the wrong thing. And this is our theme for the whole month of March and April. Sometimes when we make decisions based on our feelings, and we are so desperate to have it, it's because we are head over heels. The Israelites were in love with the idea of asking God, a king that will be like all the nations in the world. They wanted the king to rule them just like all the nations in the world. They don't want to be unique. That's the idea of kadosh. That's the idea of holy, separate, unique. God is holy, separate, unique. There's no other God before him, separate, unique. So God wants Israel to become holy, separate, unique. But they don't want to be unique. They want a king to rule over them, just like all the nations in the world. God gave it to them. And there are certain lessons that we can learn from asking God the wrong thing. What lessons can we learn today? This is the lesson. Watch out for the red flags. Whenever we make decisions, we always have to watch out for the red flags. In chapter 10, there are several red flags, three of them. Number one, the first red flag is Mizpah. What's the name of this place again? The name means God is witness. So whenever we make rash decisions or major decisions in life, we would like to understand what's happening here. Think again, Mizpah. God is witness. God is watching. So when I'm about to make a decision, I have to ask myself, am I in the right position to ask God for this? Do I fully understand the consequences of this request? And am I willing to suffer the consequences if I am wrong in asking for this request? Am I making a rash decision and not consulting God if He wants this for me right now? Is this what God really wants? Mispah. Know that God is witness. See, the problem with asking God for something that we really want, desperately want, is that we want it regardless. And it doesn't matter if God doesn't want it. All that matters is we want it. At this point, Israelites just want a king. It doesn't matter what God wants. The second red flag is the casting of lots. See, there are specific events in our lives that you can always go back to. 
and see where we have made serious mistakes in life. Now, all of us are put in that situation. We have made serious mistakes in our lives. And if you can go back to the history, if you can recall, you can almost see a picture in your mind what went wrong and what could have done to change it or to stop that mistake. And if you are sensitive enough, there are nudges and whispers and alarm bells as if God is telling you, don't do it, and yet you did it. Deja vu is a French word for saying, it's happening again. See, the casting of lots is like a pattern. It's happening again. Albert Einstein said, and I quote, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, unquote. See, when we make mistakes, it's not the first time we did it. There are many instances that we have done in the past, and if we just pause and think and do it slowly, we will be able to see that we are committing the same mistakes. Deja vu, casting of lots. The casting of lots is a reminder for us to learn what happened to Achan. What happened to Achan happened to Saul. You know, in fact, if you read the whole story of the Bible, what happened to Saul also happened to Jonah. Remember that? They were in the sea, in the middle of the storm, and they don't know who the culprit is. It was Jonah hiding in the bell of the ship. So they casted lots and they found Jonah. See, this would not be the third time. Third time will be the soldiers at the foot of the cross. And they were casting lots again. Who will get the tunic of Jesus Christ? See, the casting of lots is a reminder that it's happening again. So when I'm making a big decision in my life, look for red flags. Is it happening again? Am I learning from the past? The third red flag is Saul. Who is Saul? Saul is the chosen king, but he's not the right man for the job because Saul is just simply the reflection of the people's desire to have a human king. He's the reflection of the desire to reject God as king. Look at verse 21. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Now, if you're reading this, what sticks in your mind that this, he's taller? You almost forgot that he was hiding. He was chosen, but he was, he was hiding. See, the casting of lots was all pointing to Saul. Saul, but he was not there. It's not because he was lost or he was late. It's because he was hiding. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be king. He's hiding among the baggage. This is a red flag for Israel. Right there and then, they should have seen the red flag. Saul doesn't want. He doesn't care. He's hiding. And yet, they are head over heels. They just wanted to have a king that will rule over them regardless of who it is. And then the passage says he's taller than any of them. So the people forgot that the more important qualification is integrity, responsibility, commitment, tenacity, passion, not the height, not the looks. Well, if you're watching a movie, of course, looks are very important. But if you're looking for a king, looks are not are secondary. I mean, there are more important things that are important here. Let me address the singles in the room. If you're single, if you're praying for someone or dreaming of someone, 
try your best to look beyond the aesthetics. I'm not saying that you settle for less. It's not Andrew E. Humanap ka ng pangit, ibigin mong tunay. It's not that. It's not that. What I'm saying is that if you have to be smart, you have to look beyond the aesthetics. You have to look for certain characteristics. Look for red flags. She's pretty, but does she value the same things that I value? Is he handsome, but is he also responsible? She has a good sense of fashion, but does he know how to spend money wisely? He's fun and he knows how to make jokes, but is he also committed? Does he have plans for you? Is he someone or she someone who will get you closer to God? Does he or she love Jesus? Or is this another soul? See, this is the same principle that we can use when we're deciding on any major decision in life. Doing a business venture, moving to another place, or any major decision in life. Even choosing for a hobby. Will this get me closer to God? Will this decision help me trust God more? Will I become a better disciple if I do this? Or is this just reflecting my own selfish desire? Can I confidently say that this is really what God wants for me? So obviously, the people of Israel looked past the red flags. They just wanted a human king. But because God is wise and he is good, he granted the people the request. And he anointed Saul. It was just like, you know, I'm giving you a, a false guy, and therefore here is Saul. That's it. Now, God knows that Saul was just a farmer. He's a simple guy. He's not fit for the job. So what God did was he anointed Saul through Samuel. And then he poured the spirit on Saul. And then he gave him another heart. He enabled Saul to be king. In fact, that's what you read in verse 6. Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. See, what God did to Saul was to change his heart by giving him the spirit. Why does he have the anointing? Why does he need the spirit? Because without the spirit and without the anointing, Saul cannot do a good job of a king. God knows he was just a simple farmer. Look again at verse 9 and 10. In verse 9, it says, When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. So he was not just anointed, he was not just given the spirit, but he was given a different heart, another heart, a heart supposedly that is connected with God. But you see, no matter how God enabled Saul, he still remains the wrong man for the job. How? Two things. Number one, when Samuel told him that when he reaches the third destination, he will come to Gibeath, he will be filled with the Spirit, and what happens is that, according to Saul, he should do what his hands find to do. You'll find that in verse 7. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Okay, what he's saying is that, if you, now that I have anointed you with oil, I have crowned you king, now that I, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, now that you are turned because you have a different heart, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. What is this phrase about? This phrase is about action. It's a metaphor for doing something. See, the people wanted the king who will fight their battles. Samuel is telling Saul, you have everything that it takes. God has already enabled you. Do what your hand finds to do. Become a king. Become a savior. 
But what did, what did Saul do? You'll find it in verse 5. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistine. Now, hang on exactly. What is Gibeath Elohim? Gibeath Elohim is a city inside Israel, but it's deep inside in the middle of, of Palestine. Gibeath is just kilometers away from Jerusalem. Now, it will become, Jerusalem will become the capital of Israel. Mizpah is just a day's walk from Jerusalem to Mizpah. It's like saying Gibeath Elohim is at the very center of, say, Washington, D.C. It's like saying the garrison of the Philistine is already at Gibeath Elohim. It's like saying there's a, an enemy outpost right next to the White House. It's already there. The enemy has already penetrated the Israelites, and they cannot fight the enemy. So what, what Samuel is trying to, to, to Saul is that you have the anointing, you have the Holy Spirit, your heart is different, fight the enemy, try to be a savior, act like a king, show the people that it's not just about looks and heights and money. You can be king. You got this. It was like telling Saul, whispering, nudging him in the right direction. There's a garrison. You can fight all the enemies. He's like trying to tell Saul, you can be like Jephthah or Samson or Gideon or Barak. Do this. And what did Saul do? He went straight home. Verse 14. Right after that, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? I mean, he, he went home. So his uncle said, where did he go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. As if nothing really exciting happening. I mean, he met Samuel. Samuel was the prophet of God. The only, I mean, he's like a rock star. He met with the prophet of God. So Saul's uncle was very excited. Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, period. Very interesting. So there's a, a sort of a commentary here at the very end of verse 16. It says, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. You know, that's kind of odd. Because would it be logical to think that after encountering the prophet of God, the very prophet of God, after hearing God has chosen him, after the anointing of oil, after pouring of the Spirit, after giving him another heart, would it be logical to think that he would be excited to go back home and tell all the people, hey, I am crowned king? It's like going for a job interview and you got the job, you went back home, you were dancing crazy in front of everyone, you're saying, hey, let's celebrate, I, am, I had the job, I got the job. But Saul was not happy. He kept it secret. Why? The question is why? Because he knows deep inside he was the wrong man for the job. Deep inside, he knows he cannot replace God as king. Deep inside, he knows he's nothing but a reflection of the people's heart. That's why in verse 27, it says, But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. So imagine this. They're all gathered in Mizpah. Saul is presented to the people. And Samuel said, Here is your king. 
And some worthless fellow said, how can this king save us? I mean, I know this guy. This guy was from Gibeath. He's just a farmer. I know this guy. He's not interested in politics. I know this guy. This guy is metrosexual. He's very domesticated. I know this guy. How can this man save us? That was what they were trying to ask. So perhaps I think that we should also focus on the same question. How can this man save them? Maybe these are the same people who saw the red flags and they know maybe we made a big mistake here. Saul is not the person for the job. Or maybe these are the same people who doubt the very power of God. So the anointing of Saul matters not so much to them. But I think the question is legit. How can this man save them? So let me put the record straight. When God gave them a king, he did not vacate his throne. He he did not resign. He remained seated on the throne. How do we know that? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the middle of history, there was a prophet who had a vision. And he had this fascinating vision. When I was reading this, I was flabbergasted with this. It's like, wow. I've, I've read this many times, and when I read this again, it was like, oh my God. My, my daughter would always say, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this is something new. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. I mean, the throne is king. Whoever sits on the throne is king. The Lord is still sitting on the throne. Although there was kings in Israel, the Lord is still sitting on the throne and he's high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. He's reigning. He's sitting on the throne inside the temple. Now, Isaiah saw the vision of God. He's on his throne, sitting on the throne inside the temple. Because it says the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, what Isaiah saw was a vision of the most holy place. What he saw was inside the most holy place in the temple of Solomon. Now, the Temple of Solomon was divided into two. The the holy place, the first you enter the sacred building is the holy place, and then it's divided by a very thick cloth, curtain. When you enter there, it's called the most holy place, the inner sanctum. Only the high priest goes inside the inner sanctum once a year. Why? Because it's holy. That is where God dwells inside, the most holy place. See, What's interesting here is that the Ark of the Covenant, the gold box with the cherubim on top, is the throne of God. How do we know that? Psalm 99 verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. What does it mean? The Lord is sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That is His throne. See, it's a very fascinating image here because on top of the box, the golden box, the Ark of the Covenant, are the two cherubim. It's like they're guarding what's inside the box. What's inside the box are the Ten Commandments, the manna, the pot of manna, and Aaron's staff. This is where God's throne is. This is where God is sitting. Moses in Leviticus calls this Ark of the Covenant the mercy seat. On top of the the box is called the mercy seat. It's not called the seat for no reason because God sits on the throne. See, the wrong thinking is that God is 
reigning far, far away in a distant galaxy. It's not true. In the middle of history, what the psalmist is saying is that God is reigning. What Isaiah is saying is God is reigning here on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't it the same prayer that we have that Jesus taught us? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, God is not just far away. He's here. He's with us. So think about it. Look at what's happening around the world right now. It may seem like the human kings, the presidents, the dictators, the leaders in every country are ruling the earth. Let me cite some examples. Narendra Modi is the prime minister of India. The population is 1.4 billion. Land area, 3 million square miles. That's a lot. Vladimir Putin, 146 million Russians spread over 19 million square kilometers it's twice the size of the United States. Xi Jinping, in 28, he became practically a dictator for life. Now, he's in charge of 1.5 billion Chinese in the land almost the same size of the United States. And let's not forget the big guy, Joe Biden. 333 million Americans and about approximately 5, new, 5 million new illegal immigrants from the South. We're growing, by the way. But that's not important. What's important is here. The U.S. is reported to own 5,428 nuclear warheads. I don't know about you, but one nuclear warhead, according to research, can instantly destroy the entire city of about 40 to 45 miles wide. If America has 5,428, Russia has almost 6,000, more than ours. China has 350, India has 160. Now, in the likely scenario of war, who is in charge? Perhaps we should also ask the question they raised in the time of Saul. Can this president save us? Or can anyone save us for that matter? You see, the problem with battles is that it's always destructive. If you're following Mac Niccolo Machiavelli, might makes right. Therefore, anyone who has most power will win. But if nuclear-capable countries decide one day to fight each other, we will not have a nuclear war. We will have a nuclear holocaust. That will be the end of the known world in Facebook. That's a joke about Facebook. <laughs> so think about it. The question is, which king can really save us? You see, a savior doesn't always have to be king. We look up to so many things to rescue us. If you came here today admitting that many times you trusted your doctor more than you trusted God, that is your king. Or maybe your sense of security is with Aetna or Blue Cross or Kaiser. Maybe you're thinking that if everything fails, at least I have 401k. But think about Brexit. Think about Lehman Brothers. Think about Silicon Valley Bank. Question is, where does your trust lie? Who or what do you trust to save you in distress? Who or what do you turn to the minute you end up with a bad day from work? What preoccupies your heart? You see, anything that preoccupies your heart is king. And it can be your family, your friends, your partner, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your favorite celebrity, your favorite game, your favorite hobby. Which king can save you? I want you to consider some patterns here. 
Saul went looking for a donkey. Instead, he found Samuel. And then he was anointed king. And instead of fighting the enemy, he went straight home. Now, I want you to consider Jesus. He went to see John the Baptist. He was baptized. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. A dove came. And then he went straight to the wilderness to fight the enemy. And who did he find? The devil himself. See, there's a pattern going on here. And it seems to me that the Gospel of Luke was paying close attention to the narrative of Saul. Because right after the temptation of Jesus, he went straight to Nazareth and then inside the synagogue. And then he took the scroll of Isaiah and read Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that was a long read. But I think we have, we have missed the entire thing, the more important part, because he has anointed me. See, in the Old Testament, anointed means king. The first one to be anointed was Saul. What Jesus is trying to say is that God has anointed me, has made me king. See, if this was written from Isaiah, because Jesus was reading from Isaiah, Isaiah could not have been the anointed one. He's a prophet. He's not king. In the entire history of the Bible, only Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha were anointed as prophets. Only kings are anointed in the Bible. Therefore, when Jesus was reading the book of Isaiah, it could not have been Isaiah. It's a prophecy about someone. Watch the language again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. What this means is that for hundreds of years, this old prophecy was waiting for someone to be read and to be claimed. This is an ancient prophecy that was meant for someone who was actually anointed to become king. This prophecy was waiting for a king because the word anointed means Christos in Greek. Hebrew is Messiah, and English, it's king. Saul was the first one to be anointed as king. And when Jesus read this passage, he was saying, I am now anointed of God, and therefore he is king. Where do we get the idea that Jesus is king? Other than, of course, you know, that was the indictment of him. To him, when he was crucified on the cross, he was king. But he was the first one to say, God has anointed me as king. See, if Jesus just stopped there and just read the Bible, Isaiah, and then closed it, that's it. It was just another sermon, another reading of the scriptures. But he did not stop there. Look at verse 20 in chapter 4. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's like saying the prophecy is fulfilled. How is that? Verse 22 says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, Is this not Joseph's son? It's going back to Saul. It's like, like Saul is the king. I know this guy. He's a Benjaminite. He's just a farmer. Can this man save us? If you twist it to another phrase, they were asking the same thing. Is this that Joseph's son? Can this man save us? Is he really king? Now, 
What they're saying is that Jesus doesn't have the pedigree. He's not tall, rich, and handsome, just like Saul. He was just a carpenter. They knew that Jesus was from the small town of Nazareth. How can this man be king? How can this man save us? You see, the people do not trash talk against the Muslim God. They won't bash against Vishnu or Shiva or Lakshmi. People don't trash talk Buddha. But people won't even think twice of trashing the name of Jesus. Why? Because the devil knows the real competition. There's only one in competition to the throne and there's only one legitimate king. Would you say amen to that? If Jesus is not he who says he is, then why are people bashing Jesus left and right? Why are people cursing the name of Jesus? You will see assaults from Hollywood celebrities, from politicians, from majority of the ABC plus people. Even people with PhDs trash talk Jesus. Why is there so much antagonism and hate against Jesus? That's the reason it's deja vu. It's happening all over again. Rejection. Adam and Eve rejected God. Cain rejected God. The flood came in Genesis 6 because the people rejected God. In the time of Samuel, they rejected God. In the time of Jesus, in the Jewish authority and the Roman authority, rejected God. See, it's happening all over again. It's just deja vu. The devil is not offended when people reject a false king. It doesn't hurt him at all. But the devil takes offense when people begin to understand that Jesus died and on the basis of his death, he's offering salvation. Because when Jesus began to teach his disciples that he must suffer and be rejected and be killed and after three days he will rise again, Peter reacted differently. You'll find it in Mark chapter 8. When Jesus thought that he will be killed, rejected, and after three days he will rise again, he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. What is this audacity of Peter to rebuke Jesus? I mean, there's no one I mean, among his disciples who have rebuked Jesus except for Peter. Why? Because Peter does not agree that a savior, a king, if Jesus is claiming to be king, should die. King does not die. If you're watching any movie, it's very sad if the hero dies, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't die in movies. Keanu Reeves doesn't die in movies. I mean, a king should not die in movies. But 33 said, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, even Peter could not accept and reconcile that suffering and rejection and death are necessary pathways to victory. He could not accept that a king must die in order to save the people. So Jesus rebuked Peter but addressed Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Because Jesus knew everything is behind. It's, it's about Satan. Jesus knew that Satan was behind Peter. You think about it. This is nothing but the continuation of the temptations in the wilderness of Satan to Jesus Christ. What did Satan said? Three temptations. If you are the son of God, remember that? If you, what? If you are the son of God, why is Satan doing? He knows exactly who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God. 
the demons know Jesus. Demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. But he's trying to make to confuse Jesus. If you're the Son of God, you should not be hungry. Turn the baguettes, the, the stones into baguettes. I was trying to say in the wilderness. If you're the Son of God, do something about it. If you're the Son of God, you cannot die on the cross. That's what he's saying. That's what, that's what Peter was objecting for. And I think this is what we also hear unconsciously or subconsciously. If you are the child of God, you cannot be poor. If you are the child of God, you cannot die from cancer. If you are the child of God, you cannot be a victim. You cannot be persecuted. You cannot be a loser. If you are the child of God, you've got to be somebody. Do you hear that? Do you hear that accusation from the enemy? If you're the son of God, because that's exactly what Satan was whispering in the ears of Peter. If you are king, you cannot be rejected by the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees. If you are king, you cannot die. See, if you, Jesus, if you're the anointed one, you simply cannot die. You cannot save us if you're dead. So the question is, how can this king save us? How did Jesus save us? How was his suffering and death and resurrection the basis of our salvation? Listen, the salvation Jesus brings is the salvation from brokenness. We're all confused with what kind of salvation. But this salvation must be understood in the context of brokenness. And what is this brokenness all about? You see, back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had the perfect relationship with God. They can even talk to God face to face. But when they sinned, when they ate from the wrong tree, God kicked them out of the garden. They were naked and ashamed, but God clothed them. But they were kicked out from the Garden of Eden. And then God posted two cherubim to guard the entrance of the garden. What happened next was that their perfect relationship to God was broken. The unfettered relationship with God was broken. The privilege to eat from the tree of life was revoked. That is the picture of our spiritual condition with God. We are all broken. That's the reason why we hate each other, we fight each other, we hurt each other. You see, no matter, no amount of money can fix brokenness. You cannot go to any doctor and say, fix my broken heart. There's no cure for brokenness. There's no amount of medicine can fix death. Relationships cannot fix loneliness. The fact remains we are all broken people. And the real issue boils down to our broken relationship with God. So the question is, how can this king save us? Here's the answer. Only a real king can proclaim amnesty. It's called presidential pardon. Only a real king can grant clemency. Only a real anointed king has the authority to declare the Lord's favor. The Lord's favor is the Lord's forgiveness. And Jesus can save us because he's the legitimate king and asking he has the authority to grant forgiveness. Listen again to what he read. Luke chapter 4 verses 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He was given the Holy Spirit. Because he has anointed me, he was made king to proclaim good news, that's amnesty to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, that's clemency 
recovering sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's forgiveness. Only a king with the authority like Jesus can forgive sins, can fix brokenness. Jesus is king. Who can save you except Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the privilege of worshiping a great king. We declare that there's no human king that can save us. We declare that these human leaders that we have can only fix, bandage the brokenness that we have. There's nothing that is enough to fix the brokenness that we are suffering right now. But because of Jesus Christ, who has bridged our way to the cross, because of the blood of Jesus Christ that became the basis of forgiveness, because of the authority of Jesus Christ that He has proclaimed liberty to us, we are now facing a great God again. Father, we declare there's only one King in our lives, and that is Jesus Christ. Father, we proclaim that Jesus is King in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.